So if you're just now joining us online, we appreciate you doing that this morning, and uh, we look forward to what God's going to do in our lives as we look into His Word here. We're in John, the ninth chapter, and I absolutely love this passage of Scripture. After studying it this week, I told uh, the kids, I said, I think this may be my fa new favorite chapter in John, you know. Uh, I just love this. It starts by recounting an event that Jesus had uh, as a part of his pilgrimage where he encountered a man born blind. And so if you have a Bible or I see some of you scrolling around on your phone, even Jean, she amazes me. You know, you know how many 70 plus year olds actually do the Bible on a phone? I mean, you're like setting the bar high here. So, um, but at any rate, in John 9 and 1, if you've you got a Bible, open it, follow along there. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud uh, with that saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. And he said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And I did it. I practiced this verse, and I was going to say washed. But my Texas keeps coming out, and we had him washed again, okay? So, um <laughs> I'll probably do it again before we're finished here this morning, but uh, I thought I wouldn't do that this morning, but I did. Before we get into this miracle, let's look at this little short dialogue between the disciples and Jesus concerning this man. Have you ever looked at some individual and asked, I wonder how that person got there? Or maybe you've looked at your own life and said, how did I get here? In essence, I think that's kind of what they're doing here. In my opinion, at least, that's the heart of their question. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I think they were looking for a cause and effect, a first cause of this. <coughs> Maybe trying to, uh, to avoid it for themselves. And what they did really was plug into the theology of the day. And you're going to see that later on in this exchange with the Pharisees. That this is the way people looked at life. We might see it differently. As I read that, I certainly would not have made the kind of assumptions that they did. But we often ask the same kind of questions, don't we? I mean, really, we look at parentage being the problem a lot of times. You ever heard statements like this? An apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We're blaming something in the kid's life on parentage, aren't we? That's a theology we have. Or how about like father, like son? You know? We also look for personal responsibility, just like the disciples did. Was this the parents' fault? Or is there personal responsibility here? This is my line. You may not use this one, but this, was, this is mine. Um, I'll be driving along when the kids were small and we'd see somebody, you know, in some condition, some particular state, and I would make a statement, I wonder how many bad choices you got to make to get there. Personal responsibility, right? Good theology, bad theology, we think that sometimes. Do you not even say that about your own life sometimes? 
How about this one? The little more religious version of that same thing. This is just the law of the harvest at work. Man reaping what he sowed. And in that sense, the disciples' question seems ridiculous to us. Because a man born blind, how could he be responsible? His parents' sin or his sin? I guess maybe the disciples were thinking about those extra kicks that you did in the womb. You know what I'm saying? You were mad at mom? You know, I mean, we look at that and go, this is kind of a crazy question. But that has to do with our theology today. Okay, so my point here is this, that we have a lot of the same thinking that those disciples had theologically. We may not agree with them on the age of accountability as far as sin goes, but we at least have a lot of the same thought patterns. All right? That's important for us. I think it's important for us to be able to identify with that. Otherwise, we look at what Jesus does here and says to them and say, yeah, that's just the disciples. Oh, yeah, that's there. But what Jesus is fixing to say is explosive in the sense that it's fixing to blow up their theology. And it's going to push them to a whole new place. And if we don't see that we're the same people, then what Jesus said to them that was so just transitional and revolutionary in their lives and transforming we're going to miss and that would be tragic today so can you agree with me that our theology at least in some sense mimics what these disciples are saying this day and if you look at this the disciples are looking where they're looking backward for an explanation to that life that is just from their perspective filled with unfairness, it is painful, it's imperfect. And in all of that pain that they're seeing there, I mean, 38 years born blind. That's a rough life. And this is not a Helen Keller story. This is a haul them out and set and let them beg every day story. And so they were looking for a first cause backwards in history. And they were also looking for the parents, someone to blame for this tragedy or injustice, you might call it. And these are not necessarily things that we need to throw out. Think about it for a minute. We, we see parents who do, mom does drugs and the baby comes out with some kind of handicap that can be directly tied to the lifestyle that the mom lived. So it's a legitimate question to say, why is this suffering happening? Is it something that the parents did? So it's not that that, that is not an illegitimate question. And, and we also understand that, that we can look back on our own lives and see the things that we've done that would lead us to the place that you know we might be in some kind of misery too. So those are not like, it's not like those are, or bad questions. But if that's where we stop, then we, we're missing something. We're looking back and only back historically to answer these dilemmas of mankind. Do we do that? My favorite is, again, it reflects in our little sayings that we have. My favorite, I guess, is thanks to Adam and Eve. That's where we're at. We're fallen man, 
and we live in a fallen world. And so it is what it is. That's my phrase. It's not original with me. I stole it from somebody. I think it was Croy. But I'm not, not exactly sure about that one, you know. Um, you ever heard me say this little phrase? My kids have, I'm sure. Life's not fair and then you die. Well, I don't know where I got that one. I had a long time before I came here. And some of you picked that one up. I'm pretty sure that I had it the first time Asa looked at one of his sisters and said, that's not fair. Because I can say, I can remember saying, life's not fair and then you die. You might as well get used to it, you know. So these things re reflect our, our theology, don't they? Where do we get these ideas? Um, let me read you a passage of scripture. Ecclesiast Ecclesiastes 9.11 The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to all. Life ain't fair. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, as birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Now, is that not just a long-winded way of saying life's not fair and then you die. And that's right out of the book. Galatians 6 and 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time... We'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, we talked about this one on the retreat, let us do good to all people, especially to those to, who belong to the family of believers. It is what it is. How many times have you not looked back on your life and you know you? this is the law of the harvest at work? God's got this, my sister says. It is what it is. King David, perfect example. It is what it is. So these little phrases, they reflect our theology, really, don't they? And they reinforce it. What are some more? Bless her heart. <laughs> don't be hating. That's one of you guys, younger generation. I love this one. All people are good. Turn on country music and listen. It's in all the music. Some of our ideas are completely off base, aren't they? We could explore that one. My point is, before we're too rough on the disciples, I want us to see that we're a lot like them in theology. We do a lot of looking in the past for understanding. Maybe the responsible question there would have been to ask something like this. How is this man's miserable life condition possibly going to bring glory to God? If they'd asked that question, Jesus might have said, I'm glad you asked. 
And then as he gives instructions to the blind man and the blind beggar obeys, you see the glory of God manifest in this man's life. Now, if you just look at that for a minute, just for two seconds, where's the, where's the focus there? The focus there is on the future. The focus is on the future. Jesus is kingdom focused. He is future focused. This is not really to say now that Jesus didn't have a really good grasp on the past. He was able to take the scripture and show the present in line of the past. He was there at creation. He was there before creation. Jesus was well aware of the past. But in this moment, to bring glory to God, he was looking at the kingdom of God coming in that man's life, manifesting itself so that the glory of God might be seen in his life. And that's pretty much the way Jesus lived his whole life. Even when he's standing there with the woman that we read about last week who was caught in adultery. And he said, now leave your life of sin. Remember the other fellow he talked to and said, Go and sin no more, lest something worse befall you. Remember, you could look at that and say, oh, that's the law of the harvest. This is what's coming down. But what was Jesus' focus in both of those? Future. Go and leave that life. Go and sin no more. He was future focused. Because then as you walk into the will and work of God in the future, what happens the glory of God becomes manifested in your life. We live too much looking in the past like the disciples did. And we're going to miss those opportunities. Those opportunities that we read about to see the glory of God. Jesus answers the question, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent us. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus takes sin out of the equation completely, doesn't he? He says that this man was born this way in order that the works of God might be manifest in him. Manifest. Demonstrated, displayed, shown. That's what manifest means. He said, well, Rick, where do you get that word? Well, that's because I read the King James Version and the American Standard Version on this passage also. And it says this. It says, neither did this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God would be made manifest in him. They would be demonstrated in him. They would be displayed in him. They would be shown in him. That's what's happening here. That's what we want in our lives, isn't it? So let's try to stay future focused for a minute. Jesus is looking at a different situation, knowing that a difficult situation, knowing that he's about to speak into this situation, the will of God and the work of God for this man. And he is, if he will, if you will, seizing that opportunity that God has given him at this moment to in love serve one another. To do the good that God has placed in front of him. That's what Jesus is fixing to do. That is just as when you and I were to or are to give a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name who is thirsty. 
God is manifested. He's demonstrated. He's displayed. He's shown in all of those moments. Something that simple is a moment, a God moment. It is uh, the people of God just loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind and loving their neighbor as their self. It's just that simple. My point. We will miss a million opportunities if we are not future focused. We will, if we do not see the plight of all men as an opportunity to be seized in which God might make himself manifest in this world. Okay. I messed it up. I'm going to read it again. I may read it three times because I want you to get it. This is my point. We're going to miss a million opportunities if we are not future focused. We're going to look at person, persons in their mess and say, hmm, too bad. Instead of seeing the opportunity in the moment for the manifestation of God in that place. By our relieving suffering, by our serving our fellow man, by our giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. We will miss a million opportunities if we're not future focused. If we do not see the plight of all men as an opportunity to be seized in which God might make himself manifest in this world. Your pain, your suffering is an opportunity for me to walk with you in that, that the things of God might be manifest and a place for you to walk in it in such a way that the things of God might be manifest in you too. And if we are stuck where the disciples were, we're never going to see the glory of God. And you're going to see that the Pharisees were stuck exactly where the disciples were in a moment and they missed completely the work of God. Thus is the admonition. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Listen, in America, we view life this way. Eat, drink, and be merry. Work real hard so that you can play on the weekends. Eat, drink, and be merry. A more biblical view would be whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. Maybe everything in a man's life is marked out so that he might just find God. That he might see the work of God manifested in his life. And primarily above all else, that would be that that man would come to Jesus and have life. And I think that's consistent with John's theme, don't you? Where he says, I'm telling you this, I'm laying it out for you in order that you might believe in Jesus and have life. Here's a verse for you from Acts 17, 26. This one is one that uh, caused me to stop and ponder a bit and still does. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. That, that one takes some thinking, doesn't it? I was born in a place where I am, in the land I am, in the time that I am, and God did that in just such a fashion, so I had my best shot at finding him. It could be read that way. 
Let's finish looking at the record of this event. Jesus made mud. He put it on the man's eyes and he told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did. Probably not an easy task. If he made his way anyway without the help of others. Scripture doesn't say that that wasn't a possibility too. But however, he got there. And that was an act of faith. And that was an act of hope on his part. It was future focused as well, wasn't it? I don't know, when I read that, the thing that first popped into my mind was the story of Naaman, where he was told to go and dip in the river, you know, uh, Jordan River, seven times, and because of pride, he didn't go. And so I was just immediately captured by the fact that this man, in a pretty difficult situation, maybe to even make it happen because he was blind, jumped at the opportunity. Now, Jesus had not done what he did in a vacuum, so I'm sure he had heard about the miraculous things that Jesus was doing, but he jumped at the opportunity to be responsive to our Lord's command. Is there a word there for us? I, I think so. This, of course, is going to bring Jesus in conflict with everybody who is unable to appreciate such a God moment. And you're going to see that with the Pharisees in a minute. In fact, John, is the way he records it here, there's sort of a building of the resolve against Jesus. It's getting more and more intense. And this is eventually is going to lead us to the cross. And now you see a rejection of Jesus in such a way, you're going to see here, that they are casting people out of the temple. They are disfellowshipping with folks who are identifying with Jesus. It's not just Jesus anymore that they're after, but they're assaulting everyone who would associate them, him, themselves with him. Now you just, you gotta love this dialogue. And it stands on its own and it speaks for itself. It's one of those stories where you just drop your jaw and laugh. And at the same time, you can feel the intensity of the moment. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him. Let's pick up in verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him. Begging. Blind. They ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. It's just beyond imagination, isn't it? You've seen a man for 38 years, born blind, sitting and begging. And now all of a sudden he's looked in a mirror and probably straightened some things up that weren't straight before. And he's walking around with both eyes open. No, nah, it can't be him. Did we ever do that? Doubt a miraculous work of God? Well, it must have been something else. I've known people who were really miraculously healed. Doctors had no explanation. Nobody else did either. And boy, we sure struggle to jump on that train, don't we sometimes? How then were your eyes open? They demanded. And he replied, look at this, the man. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam wash. See, I got it right. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. He said, I don't know. They brought him then to the Pharisees. The man who had been blind. 
Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was the Sabbath. Okay, now that's significant. People say, you know, why did he do that? Why did he spit on the ground? Why did he make mud? Why did he put it in his eyes? Why did he tell him to go and wash all of that on? Well, because Jesus was intentionally breaking their Sabbath law. Because they would have considered that work. I consider it gross. They considered it work, okay? But he spit. He made mud. That's working on the Sabbath. And he told this guy to take this journey. I mean, and he's healing on the Sabbath. This puts him in contention with their Sabbath law. Therefore, the Pharisees also ask him how he had received his, light, his sight. Notice it's on the Sabbath. This is important to them. He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees says, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. There's their problem. They have a theology that Jesus is just not fitting into. But others said this, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they were divided. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? The response to Jesus will divide, still does. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. Now look at this. And the man replied now. What does he say? He is a prophet. Before, who did he call him? The man. Now he's a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight until they sent for the parrot. Well, you've seen this. Somebody goes to a healing service and they get out of the wheelchair and you say, yeah, but did they just get in the wheelchair and roll in? You know, don't, don't you see people do that? This guy really wasn't blind. This is all just a sham. Go get his parents. And so they did. Is this their son? Yeah, it's our son. Is this the one that was, let me get it right here. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can see? Well, we know it's our son and we know that he was born blind. Now, how we can see or who opened to his eyes, we don't know. Well, they weren't there. That was true. At least I'm assuming that. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Here's an interesting commentary by John. He says, and his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledges that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. I would have just not said anything because I wanted to be absolutely accurate, but John is able to read a motivation in here that shows us the heightened tension that's happening between Jesus and these synagogue rulers. That's why the parents said he's of age, ask him. And a second time then, I love this. This is where it really gets good. They summoned the man who was blind and they said, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. It's almost like one of those old time movies where they're asking somebody to recant you know what i'm saying give glory to god in this according to who according to our particular interpretation give glory to god we know this man is a sinner and he said whether he's a sinner or not i don't know but one thing i do know i was blind and now i see i wonder how he said that I've gone over that in my mind a million times. 
Did he say it with that calm, cool voice, you know, that was just the gentle answer that turned away wrath? Or did he let him have it, you know? Or whatever it was, it had enough force and it had enough power with power with it uh, that it was it was starting to agitate and starting to reel to cause them to reel. It says, and then they ask, "What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes?" And this is where it gets really good. I told you already, and you did not listen. Now, you got to know, this is the this is the religious leaders. These are the teachers. These are the guys in charge. He's given testimony. The parents have given testimony. I told you already, you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, just play with that a minute in your brain, okay? 38 years, born blind. Here he is. What does he look like? Well, he's a real studied, learned individual, isn't he? He went to school and read all the books. And he's schooling these guys. You want to be his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and they said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Now, isn't that remarkable? You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. So Jesus has gone from man to prophet to the godly man who does God's will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This guy had enough knowledge of Old Testament scripture to know that there was never a miracle of anyone born blind with this kind of healing. He's schooling the teachers. To this they replied, look at this. Have you seen this before? You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Where did we see that before? Was it his parents' sin or his? He was steeped in sin at birth. He must have been a bad little boy in the womb. Born in Adam. And in that sense he was. But so were they. And they threw him out. Now they extend, they extend the persecution beyond Jesus. You're seeing it affect those who follow. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And look, at it. I love this. Pay attention to this. He found him. Jesus seeks and saves that which is lost. And he says to him, do you believe in the son of man? He's asking about his theology. You believe in the son of man. You know the concept of the Messiah. You heard about it? Yes, sir. He says, who is he? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So we've gone from man to prophet to godly man who does the will of God to the son of man to now him calling him Lord and worshiping him. 
Lord, I what? Look at that. I believe. Why did John write his book? These things have I written unto you. Why? So that you may believe, believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And that in him, believing in him, that you might have life. And he's laying it out. Man, prophet, godly man who does the will of God without sin maybe, right? Son of man, the Messiah, Lord. John says, do you believe in him? Keep the theme in mind, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Those who should have been most likely to see, that had the training and the insight, missed it. They were blinded to the light of the world, Jesus. And those who were blind, they were the ones who were able to see. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and ask, What? Are we blind too? At least they were recognizing what he was saying to them. And he said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. Why? Because he could redeem them. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. Jesus, he told us, he's the light of the world while he was in the world. If you are looking at the world in that light through Jesus, your future is full of hope. But without it, what happens? Your sin and guilt remains. A Savior, you've got to have to wash away your sins. This from the Broadman commentary, he says here, here the gift of vision to one blind, born blind, Preparing him uh, for this progressive illumination in coming to see. There was a progressive illumination here, he says. First it was man, then it was prophet, then it was from God, the son of man, the Lord. Wherever you're at in that pilgrimage, you got to get to the Lord place. You got to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you never have life. And this is what John says. You don't have life abundant and you don't have life eternal. God wants us to have life, age life, abundant life, eternal life. And this is John has made very clear. To do it, to have it, we must believe. And when we do, he will redeem us. He will justify us. He will sanctify us. He will cause the fruit of the Spirit to grow in us. We will become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We will love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. And we will seek first the kingdom of God and the glory of God. Making the most of every opportunity, we will serve one another in love. We will do everything for the glory of God. And then, and then we'll be cast out of the past as this man was cast out of the synagogue and we will be catapulted into the future and into a future focusedness that will lead us forward in worshiping the Lord. Our Savior.
the kingdom of God will come in our lives. This is the age life that John wants us to find. Is it yours? Future focused or stuck in the past? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. And somehow our eyes were opened and we believed. And we are still believing. Help us to be future focused enough to make the most of every opportunity knowing and believing, Lord. That the glory of God can be manifest in our lives on a daily basis. Help us to work with you and not against your agendas for our lives. To desire the fruit of the Spirit. To desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. To desire to love you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself. Lord, sometimes we get caught up in the American agenda and think it would be just great to eat, drink, and be merry. And live for the weekend pleasures. But that's not life. Bring us to that place, Lord, where we can step into the age life, the abundant life, the eternal life that you have for us. Because if we miss this, Lord, we missed everything. What good is it if a man gain the whole world and lose his soul? Commit it to you, Lord, and ask that your voice speak to us. That we might make the most of every opportunity. For Jesus' sake, amen. Whatever God's saying to you, whatever he's speaking to you, just respond with a yes in these moments. Look for those opportunities around you with eyes open, future focused. Whatever you need to do this morning, ask him into your heart as Lord and Savior. I invite you to do that. 